This is Acid Horizon, a theory podcast which confronts global crisis and the specter of a world that could be free. This is Episode 5, Mark Fisher and Post-Capitalist Desire, a reading of Egress with Matt Cocoon. Thank you for joining us. Hey folks, this is Craig. Before we start our episode, I just wanted to let you know that our interview with Matt Cahoon on Mark Fisher and post-capitalist desire went about two hours. Now I trimmed the episode down a little bit. I cut it in two and I put the latter half on our Patreon page. But I understand not everybody's in a position right now to fork out extra money. So if you really want to grab it, please hit me up on Twitter or hit us up on Instagram and we'll just send the episode to you. Maybe one thing that you can do is just share the podcast on your social media or just connect with us on social media too. That helps us out. Well, in any event, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. On today's show, we have Matt Cahoon, author of the lovely, haunting, and eminently philosophical biography of Mark Fisher entitled Egress on Mourning, Melancholy, and Mark Fisher. Matt is both a writer and photographer, and he also produces content for his blog, xenogothic.com. Also with us are hosts Matt and Will. Matt, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matt, maybe you could offer a bit more on your background and current projects. Uh, yeah. Um, as Well, as you say, yeah, I've been blogging at xenogothic.com for about three years now, and uh, that's given birth to quite a few things since then. At the moment, I'm trying to get some photography back on the blog. I, I was trained as a photographer originally and used to have a photo blog for a long, long time. Writing's kind of took over. Just finished a second Mark Fisher project that we'll probably talk about in a bit. Um, it's an edited collection of some of his lectures um, and got a few other things in the oven, uh, a book on accelerationism, which I'm hoping to finish soon, um, something else in the American West and something on uh, philosophy and adoption. And, and recently uh, I noticed on your blog that you've conducted a virtual lecture on K-Punk and its ongoing legacy. And as you might already know about us, the existence of this podcast is derivative of this massive global event we're all part of. Uh, I'm just curious, how have uh, recent events shaped the community surrounding your work? Yeah, um, it's been a very strange time. I suppose my book Egress is concerned with one community quite explicitly. And that community was always quite amorphous and in some respects doesn't even exist anymore. But it it, it was a community that kind of offered a a glimmer of another way of life that sort of couldn't exist beyond uh, what the event horizon of uh, returning to the world of work after um, graduating from university. And like so many things, you know, lots of things can't really escape that event horizon of the working world. But there's, um, I think there's something else here now that is resonating with that in my mind quite explicitly from the sort of new communities that have arisen online and elsewhere around the coronavirus pandemic and um, kind of revitalized politics that's come out around that. I feel like it's it's not really a coincidence that Black Lives Matter has got, um, you know, it feels like it has a lot more resilience as a movement 
now this year than it did 2014, precisely because, you know, we've already all quite used to the fact that normal life has been suspended. And it's a lot easier to suspend other things as well. But I suppose we'll see how long that lasts and yeah, how long those, uh, how far those ripples travel, I suppose. Could you tell us what immediately led you to focus on Egress as a writing project? And what did you think the biggest challenge was in approaching that project? Uh, yeah, so Egress was initially my master's dissertation, um, which is quite a strange thing to acknowledge, I think, in in orbit of a kind of writing project like this. And and it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a strange it feels like a strange book to me because it's constantly narrating its own existence. And it's usually quite and it's not common for a, a dissertation, whether that's for any kind of degree at any kind of level, to then, you know, reach a bookshelves and still retain the mark of its birthing from the academy. In a way, that's kind of the tension that the book's about, really. The the strange in-betweenness of certain projects or events, political projects, that it's cultural projects. And yeah, the, the the death of Mark Fisher, which is kind of the book's central event, is kind of the precisely that moment. It was a, a moment experienced, for me at least, in the explicit context of university. But it's an event that's continued to have, you know, implications and ramifications for my life and other people's lives far beyond that context. Um, and what happens to an event like that, um, uh, the experience of an event like that, the memory of an event like that, um, and what it kind of those 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 kinds of events can change into after the fact is partly what I wanted to explore. So, in that sense, in terms of what the biggest challenge is in in in, in writing that project, I guess it's hard to really pick one. It's been a the, the whole project was a challenge from start to finish, and it kind of continues to be. It's about it's more or less a year since I finished it and submitted it for publication, even though it came out yeah, yeah just a few months ago in March this year, and it's already changed yeah a great deal uh, in my mind anyway. And I think that partly the, the desire to finish it and put it out in the world, make it what was quite a private thing, make that public was, I think it was a I had this strange desire that it was bring some sort of closure, which in hindsight is probably <laughs> the, is the last thing it was ever going to do. But that's kind of, you know, it's, it's raised new challenges and kind of kept it going. So it's a book that tries to narrate an existential shock in a way. And that shock is still rippling out into the future for as far as I can see. So in the wake of that existential shock, as you say, there's also an aspect to your book that I think is quite enabling for us as philosophers, activists, and readers of theory. In what ways do you think that maybe other people who experienced this existential shock became enabled maybe in the same way that you were, or maybe positively transformed despite the tragedy that was Mark's death? It's it's almost an impossible question. Um, I feel like to some extent that it's a book that's given me a great deal of hope, and it did at the time of writing it, but that hope's constantly being challenged. And I guess that's partly what I mean in saying that it's a the challenges of the book have only just gotten more intense, even after the fact of writing it, that um, what the book's now capable of doing, what Marx thought is capable of doing, what philosophy in general is capable of doing, and how it's able to stay resilient despite the sort of ebbs and flows and uh, deaths and births of various different projects and people even, is, yeah, something that is very difficult to put to put into words, really. and. I think that if there's anything that I hope that the, the, the book can provide to people, it's a way of showing how that kind of 
project can be held open, I guess, despite the world around you sort of telling you otherwise. I, I love the way that you put that. I wanted to jump in there because um, one of the things, I mean, you, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've said before that one of the reasons you wanted to write this book and one of the reasons why you continue to write about Mark Fisher is a kind of frustration with the ways in which he gets distorted and misused and almost turned into a caricature of himself by others. And so one of the things I read from on your blog recently, which I really, really liked, was the capitalist realism of the capitalist realism is ending, um, <laughs> which I really, really liked because there is this habit, right, where every time we go through some sort of regular cyclical crisis, every single time, the answer is capitalist realism is finally ending. And of course, at least so far, it never has. Um, so, you know, are, are you trying to sort of provide a sort of corrective to the... Uh, popularly accepted vision of who who Mark Fisher was and what his work represented? In a way, it's an attempt to just elongate out that process, in a way. I feel like there's there's a habit that, I think it's a habit that everyone has, in a way, especially when discussing things online. Um, uh, and even in forums such as this, really, you know, I think that the strength of this sort of, and this is something that I found with my own blog, this, I think the strength of, of offering this kind of conversation and uh, this sort of content for lack of a better word that allows people to kind of hear quite casually really what various people whether in their circles or not are thinking about and about the world around them i think the casual nature of that can sometimes lead people to make assumptions and rush into sort of final opinions in a way and i feel like that there's a strange tension between holding a thought open and allowing sort of new uses for it to come into being it, it, it comes down to it's, it's the, like a fundamentally philosophical question right of like the what is truth i feel like that kind of specter of something that can be true it's as if to sort of delay the to to, to acknowledge that that is the goal but to sort of also, also delay the the speed at which the systems that we're in particularly what mark would call um communicative capitalism want to kind of reduce that truth down to some sort of very basic superficial notion that can be easily assimilated, really. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the defining questions for a lot of people trying to get into philosophy. It's like, why does it have to be so difficult? And that could be anything, you know, why is, why is philosophical language often so technical, so so full of jargon and so unruly? As if it doesn't want to be understood, is it just pretentious or is it something else? And I always feel like the only argument, the best argument for that is that, yeah, it's, it's to sort of uh, hold off assimilation. And for me, as soon as Mark died, there was a process that started where this thought that the thought of this man who, you know, has been in himself and in his writings had been such a bugbear for the left for a long time, that had many of his own controversies that had never really, you know, had, had struggled to kind of make a name for himself in a way, which seems bizarre to say that now since he's sort of so in vogue. But yeah, Mark was not a popular thinker in the way that we usually, you know, he, he, I think I remember seeing some something somewhere that um, some of Mark's friends saying that, you know, his, the main thing he wanted to be was to be a pop star in every sense of the word, but that's, you know, musically with his various projects. And I think that was even, you know, they're sort of saying that that was even true of, of him as a philosopher. But I think that the thing that comes with that, and that's true of all pop stars in a way, is that you know, every when when someone becomes so known, the work that they've done can be reduced down to some sort of glib reduction. 
And that happened with Mark very immediately. So I think that part of yeah why I wrote Egress and why I've continued to write about Mark in a way is to try and almost slow down the assimilation of his writings into some sort of popular discourse. So that, you know, not, not to say that Mark shouldn't, should remain a cult figure, but so that the, 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 the idea of him that we have is, you know, at least a well-informed one. And that, you know, it, it stays true to the challenges that his thought wanted to bring into popular discourse. He wanted to be a part of the conversation and disrupted at the same time. Um, and I think that that's what people find so commendable about his writing. But I think there was a review of, of, of my book in Trivium magazine that kind of made, said it quite clearly. It's often been the case in the last few years that there's been um, no sort of figure that Marx needed more protection from than Mark Fisher fans. Um, as sad and as quite provocative as that is to say, I think it's definitely true. And that's true of anyone who enters the kind of... Um, popular imagination in the way that he has recently. I think while you're on that, I'm just wondering, Egress is such a fascinating work, particularly because right after you provide, you know, such a striking personal analysis that leaves like a pretty heavy impact on anybody who reads it, you jump right into some of the more subtle influences that are kind of only tacitly present in Mark Fisher's work. And I was wondering what pushed you to engage with, say, thinkers like Bataille and literary theorists like Blanchot, when generally, like you say, so much of the um, the discourse surrounding Fisher is sort of this reworking of Deleuze and Guattari, a sort of blending of various post-structural figures from uh, Baudrillard to Foucault. I- I'm wondering, part of what makes this text so interesting to, to me, and I think to many, is the way in which you engaged in kind of an, a, an archaeology of, of Marx thought. Was that, was that a difficult process to do, to c- connect these dots, given you know, what the general consuming public has access to, right? Because Bataille is present in, in texts like Capitalist Realism and The Weird and the Eerie, but not explicitly. Was that kind of a central tenet of your project? And can you explain maybe what was going on there? I think... In a way, it was it was the resonance between this understanding of what Mark wanted to do, right? This this that sense of a popular disruption, or like a popular dissensus, I guess. And how Marx, a lot of Marx's writings, in a way, and a lot of his neologisms, these really sly combinations of paradoxes, really. I mean, it wasn't a conscious decision to to like openly challenge Marx's thought and this sort of sense of who his influences were. In a way, the the inclusion of Bataille in particular, who's so central to the book, and yeah, wasn't the fact that the few times that Mark does write about Bataille explicitly, he's quite scathing and dismissive of him. But I just didn't think about that, to be honest. Bataille was just hugely important to me. And it was I was reading a lot of Bataille and Blanchot specifically right before Mark's death. It was sort of serendipitous in a way. I'd been working with Bataille and Blanchot explicitly because whilst as a student, I had an, a separate essay project that I started before Mark died, that was about the performance art group Coombe Transmissions, who later became better known by the name Throbbing Gristle. Coombe Transmissions were from my hometown of Hull. And in early 2017, there was an exhibition organised in Hull, just sort of a quite maligned coastal town in the northeast of England. And there was an exhibition there that was to sort of celebrate their work and to provide a sort of retrospective 
of their performances before they kind of you know became these pioneers of industrial music. It was at that time that Cozy Fanny Tutti, who's a, a member of Throbbing Gristle, she'd written this autobiography about her time before joining the group, whilst she joined it, and then a lot of what happened afterwards. And in that book, there were a lot of quite shocking accusations made against her former partner and bandmate, the recently deceased Genesis Peorage. And that just raised quite an interesting question for me, that this, that in this moment that was celebrating this work done, these two people were coming back together in you know in the shadow of these quite serious accusations and it just it made these questions emerge of you know how can um, a group that was so renowned and so defined by its transgressive performances and its transgressive artworks be re-understood in this quite an accusation of this quite abusive relationship and the most obvious level that's not really difficult thing to untangle there's a great difference between you know the consent given in a piece of artwork and the lack of consent that, you know, in an abusive relationship. But at the same time, you know, there's, there's still a sort of complex dynamic there, and especially in the context of putting those on this exhibition, of how to ethically celebrate what one of the people, one, I mean, Cozy Fanity curated this exhibition for herself. So what's the, you know, what are the, what's the ethical approach of, um, of engaging with an archive of transgressive artwork that's so defined now in many people's minds by this other sort of the shadow of this abusive relationship? And Bataille was the most obvious person to turn to there. You know, what's the, if his project can be defined as anything, it's like a, it's an ethics of transgression. And I think that that's true of Mark's work as well. You know, despite what Mark has written about Bataille and to a lesser extent Blanchot on his blog, I personally just see as incorrect. I don't think that Mark was right in his appraisals of those people. And that, you know, in the, in the situating Mark in the history of the ideas that he's actually, he, he himself's engaging with, you know, Bataille lingers there in the shadows. He's, uh, he's, he's sort of the missing link between two of Mark's most central influences, Spinoza and Lacan. He's written a lot about, you know, Deleuze, for Deleuze and Guattari, uh, Blanchot plays a huge role in The Thousand Plateaus. Bataille is a sort of central thinker for a lot of black metal theory, which is arguably the most productive cultural theoretical synthesis that kind of came out of two of Marx's key interests, hauntology and accelerationism. And for accelerationism, the central text of that philosophy was Jean-Francois Lyotard's Libidinal Economy, which is a reading of Bataille with Marx. So, yeah, I got some flack more recently for, you know, even thinking to include Bataille in this book just because of Marx's opinion of him over someone like Stuart Hall. For me, it wasn't something I even considered as far as Mark's own projects were concerned, and as far as my own project was concerned, to do something, to write a book that I wanted to be, in a very generic sense, an ethical project, that was nevertheless seen as by many people around me as being a transgressive project, in the you know, with the, the in, in in it being initially quite a private thing to that I was working on, the the sense was seen, you know, why are you using this the event of this moment this moment of quite, you know, horrific trauma and grief to get a degree how can you you know uh, write about one thing in service of something so institutionalized and that's a question that continued after you know we graduated why should i be the one to write this book about mark's work to narrate the circumstances of his death as if as some sort of cash grab or clout grab but in a way it's the the, the, the tension is the same the tension that i really enjoy about Bataille's work with the frankness with which he, you know, engages in an ethics of transgression. That was the question that I found in reading Bataille in looking at the 
culture of the city from which I'm from and the the immediate circumstances around Mark's death in a university. I, I think it's really important that you included Bataille in the book for, for two main reasons. I think when it comes to writing a monograph and a eulogy like like you have, there's a creative element to it, right? And I think I think of Deleuze here, who who feels that a blend of fidelity and novelty is crucial to doing philosophy. And I would argue that there's even a creative element in writing a eulogy to someone like Mark. And I also think the inclusion of Bataille is apposite in in this case, given Bataille's own particular way of thinking egress. And especially yes. as you talk about limit experiences. And for Bataille, I think of how, for example, Bataille's notion of egress involved a critique of the political insofar as it was only incidentally capable of providing ruptures that afforded enlivening possibilities. And so I think by you doing that, it very much invokes the spirit of Marx's work. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Um, and that's, that's the hope, really. I mean, it's... Uh... But in a way, that's kind of, again, it's, it extends the question out, which the, the fact that, you know, I hadn't even considered this before publishing the thing. Um, but the fact that this question's now been raised um, is actually something that I've kind of perversely enjoyed, um, as perversely as writing the book itself. And that it, it keeps these questions going and it keeps the, uh, it, I think it, it sort of demonstrates how Marx's thought in itself is not settled. That we can have already this sort of this, this opposing opinion that some people will see the, the use of Bataille as being a, a great way to extend Marx's project, and some will see it as go a step too far in um, mutating Marx's project. But the capacity that we all have for doing that, and, and what that can do, not just to Marx's thought, but to thought more generally, is, to be honest, the sort of question that I wanted the book to ask. So as difficult as it's been to uh, I didn't. I didn't expect that question to be reflected back on me quite so pointedly in some instances, but I, yeah, I can't complain. <laughs> in Egress, you detail your own struggles with mental health in conjunction with those Mark experienced, and you also mentioned how Mark believed that our engagement with politics can be at least partially an antidote to the atomization and dislocation we experience in our world. Has adopting this premise availed you in your own struggles? Uh to be to be frank no not at all but in a way that that's it just further complicates the the relationship i think between mental health and politics as a topic that mark became in for some people really well known for talking about um i think it again just demonstrates how much tension there still is within that kind of formulation i think it should be made clear that at the time of mark's death and this is something that was been told to me by those that you know were very aware of what he was going through in the last few months of 2016. At the time of his death, he was not thinking about his final depression politically at all. I think it was Tariq Goddard, who runs repeater books, said it was actually all too personal in the end for Mark. And I think that in a way that's a it's quite a harrowing truth, but in a way it's a an important one. Because I think that it's been all too easy to for some people to to read into Mark's death as if to say that Mark's death is a failure of his thought. And in a way that my, my own book asks that question at one point, but I think it's a question that when, you know, given any sort of serious engagement, very quickly falls apart. But it's an important one to deal with. And I think that part of that comes from Mark's ardent critique of what he calls the therapeutic imaginary, which gets a bit of discussion in egress, um, which I think we've seen take on a sort of new form on Twitter recently. I can't remember who it was. It was one of the sort of... Um, 
usual gobshite Twitter leftists uh, sort of saying that, you know, therapy should be mandatory under socialism. And that's <laughs> been a tweet that spawned a thousand memes. Um, but, you know, it's, and I think the critique of that tweet, him, whoever sent it, and you know, whether, I can't even remember the source now, which is the case with all good memes. But that's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's an important thing to interrogate because that's an, that's an argument that flies in the face of a lot of, you know, post May 68 radical leftism that Mark was engaged with. Um, the writings of Deleuze and Guattari, engaging with uh, the anti-psychiatry movement at that time, you know, trying to precisely undercut the uh, the sense that mental illness is something to be solved through a kind of magical voluntarism, as Mark called it, or that it was, you know, that it should be seen through the lens of, again, what Mark called a mandatory individualism, to say that your problems are yours um, and yours alone and that you should therefore, you know, just take a, a will to be kind of come out of them. In a way, Mark made that point himself to sort of say that we need to socialise our sense of mental illness, but socialising our understanding of depression is very different from institutionalising it through a form of, you know, therapeutic psychiatry. It's a socialised, you know, it's not a kind of therapy gulag, as some people have put it, but it's a socialised treatment. It doesn't, it doesn't other madness, but it, it, it works with, uh, I should say, neurologically atypical in a way to, you know, build new ways of communal living for everyone. And that kind of project, you know, doesn't emerge from that kind of psychoanalytic relation. And a lot of those, you know, the, the likes of Lacan and whoever else made, you know, that's, that's the, the Lacanian turn in psychoanalysis to really interrogate the implications of that relationship between analyst and analyzan. This is something that you highlighted in the book as well, Mark's lens of the weird and eerie as perhaps being part of the positive ethical program that he proposes. One of the things that I really appreciate about that, it's almost like an operationalization. Did I say that right? It's almost <laughs> like operationalizing Sartre's notion of absurdity in a way and kind of drawing it into a collective political project that manifests itself through art, music, and so forth. Is that an ethos that you have engendered in your own work as a writer or photographer? Certainly in the, in the writing of this book. I feel like in a way that that's kind of the the difficulty that kind of now defines it afterwards. I mean, the fact that I think that's part of the reason why it, it has to be made clear that the book emerged from the university, because in a way it, it, to summarize it most cynically would be to say that it's, you know, it's a kind of memoir of a student experience. I hope it's much more than that, but in a way that's true. That's what it is. It's a, but in a way that that's kind of what, what's really important about how it was able to emerge from that moment. That the fact that, 2017 for me was not only the year that Mark died that was defined by a lot of grief and pain, but it was also a year without work. It was a year when I was sort of alleviated of a lot of the more general worries and concerns that dominated a kind of quote-unquote normal life. And the grief of Mark's death, in a way, allowed, it produced, it, it, was, it was weird and eerie in the sense that it produced the, a very real glimmer of a world transformed. Um, I feel like our experience... Uh, in the on the on campus was was quite distinctly different from those people that mourned Mark, you know, whilst going about their day to day lives. And a lot of people have been cynical about that, and I think it's very easy to be cynical about that. But in a way, that that's the same reason. That's the same for the same reasons that we're cynical about students more generally, or the working class more generally, or the unemployed more generally. As if to say that you know, to to, to the experiences you can have when you slip out from underneath that kind of capture to celebrate them is derided as sort of being idealistic or hedonistic or irresponsible or whatever else. But I think for us, if that wasn't the case, you know, we kind of managed to find this exit through the academy. 
And yeah, in that moment, we kind of saw another way of living our lives. And I think a part of the what then defines the rest of the book after that moment's kind of over, because the book sort of it, it covers a time period from 2017 to 2019, you know, which, which for the most part, you know, for, for those three years that the book was written through, two of those years were spent in more or less full employment for me. And I feel like part of the melancholy of the book, in a way, is trying to hold on to the instances where that, that glimmer of that other life kind of reemerged in that otherwise normal day-to-day capitalist existence. I've read some of the responses to your book. I mean, you mentioned the one about uh, Bataille earlier, right? And one of the things that strikes me, you know, I asked you earlier about um, wh- um, about how you how to prevent Mark Fisher's ideas from being simply, you know, recuperated back into a kind of undangerous sort of way of thinking or discourse. But um, of course, I never knew Mark, you know, personally. But I know two things from you know reading about him, speaking to people who you know, did know him. Um, one was that he was an educator in many, an educator in many ways, right? Um, he spent his entire you know, adult life teaching um, in different institutions and trying to, you know, explain these things to them in ways that made sense to them and, and, and encourage them to go out and do things with it, right? And so to me, one of the things actually I really like about it is that, is that you don't simply say, here's what Mark Fisher thought, let's just, you know, leave it there, let's, let's sort of cast that in stone and worship at that altar, you know, I mean... Uh, from everything I know about Mark, that probably is the last thing he'd want, right? If someone could go out there and do something productive with what he's done, go further or critique him or have new ideas, that's basically following in his spirit, I think. Um, and that's why I think it's a good thing to do. But on that note, um, one of the things I was wondering about is that one of the similarities I, I've noticed in, in both your, your book, Egress, and his writings, particularly Capitalist Realism, is the huge variety of sources, different thinkers, different ideas, different traditions. And one of the problems I've seen raised with Mark Fisher is the way in which he'll sort of flip between, say, Zizek and Lacan, and then move straight over to Deleuze and Guattari, and then back to Freud, and then over to uh, you know, someone else. And as fascinating as all that is, and you know, it draws out you know, new sort of intuitions and things, do you think there's an issue there of sort of cohesion or do you think there is a kind of underlying cohesion in what Mark was trying to do with his work? I think that what I like about Mark's work in that regard, and I mean, I feel like it is, it's, a, it's a fair point and it's something that's definitely true of me too, I think. But, um, and again, this is probably something that, uh, a response that Mark would have really despised um, because it, it depends on uh, my love of an author that he also really didn't like. Um, but one of my favourite books is W.G. Sabal's The Rings of Saturn, um, which, as I understand it, was one of Mark's least favourite books um, because it's written about the Suffolk coastline that he knew so well. And uh, actually, when finishing um, Egress, I had the opportunity to to um, do a sort of final proofread of it in uh, my my girlfriend's, um, one of her relatives has a house in Suffolk, and we stayed there, and I managed to read it over a weekend. Um, and as we'd been staying at this house in Suffolk a few times, um, uh, I decided to read Sabol sort of in situ, which is a, a sort of rite of passage that's been fetishized by a lot of people, particularly sort of the Robert McFarlane sort of psychogeography um, crowd. And I actually found myself understanding what Mark hated about Sabol the most. Um, and Sabol has this really depressing, quite cruel description of Felixstowe. Um, 
And what Sable describes is this quite, um, just a, a bit of a hellscape, really. But what I saw, and I'm, and I can assume what Mark saw, was frankly just a working class town down on its luck. Um, and so I think it's Sable's lack of a sort of social context in that regard that Mark really hated. That being said, what I love about that book more than anything is the way that it meanders in much the same way that the Sabot does, and not just physically, but yeah, in the psychogeographic sense that as much as he's walking along this coastline, his mind wanders. And the very first chapter of that book is this kind of long mediation on death um, that I think I've read over and over and over again because you just get totally lost in the in the movement of his thought. Um, it's as if you're sort of reading his, you know, this 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 incredible thinker lucidly, just like a. It's a stream of consciousness that's you know truly philosophical, not just some sort of like it's it's considered and incredibly well informed. Yeah, there's this strange tension between uh, a cohesive sort of argument and just yeah the very nature of thought moving. And I think I've read that book so many times that it's probably quite a, a, an, a both conscious and unconscious influence now that that's the kind of writing that I really love and it's the kind of writing that I love to write. Um, I like trying to reconstruct the movement of thought as it sort of passes through things. And I feel like, yeah, in a lot of ways, Mark's writing does the same thing. And I feel like it's not just, I mean, it's not that the pretension of, um, you know, of referencing Sabal there is probably a bit, over the top when really it's just a question of that's just, it's just blogging. Um, I think that's the, that's the, that's the impact of blogging on writing really is that it, it, and it's, and it's kind of what, what blogging has taught me that my, you know, no academic degree ever could do. I think that, that the amount of, of right that I think when I clock up the amount of words that I've written on my blog and post it and people just go, well, I think people think that regardless of whether I post numbers, just like how the fuck do you write so much? But it is literally just a case of writing what, having a thought and just writing it down. And sometimes those thoughts lead to other thoughts. And just doing that leads to it, what, what, what's not, in my mind, a sense of productivity. It's just thinking. And I feel like that's what, yeah, I learned that as much from Mark as I did from any other kind of literary project. And I feel like that comes across in, yeah, in his books, for better and for worse. Um, but personally, the fact that, yeah, he manages to capture the movement of his own thought in that way is something that's really refreshing and it's done well, even less frequently. Yeah. So I, I was wondering, you know, is there, is there like an underlying unity or system un, um, in, in, which you can see in Mark's work? Because I've seen attempts to draw out some um, in the past because of the nature of his writing is so, you know, it has that sort of train of thought uh, style to it. Do you think that's there or is it? I think it is there but not in the way that we're maybe used to seeing um because i feel like um this this is kind of part of the project that i'm trying to work on at the moment on accelerationism and where it came from and kind of what happened to it and part of this i think is what i found is that the moment that accelerationism as a term and as a kind of blogospheric topic is born is around a series of interviews that Elaine Badiou gave, um, and which Slazhov Zizek also commented on, about what Badiou calls the, the crisis of negation. And maybe we can go into that a bit later. But I think the one thing that I found in reading some of Badiou's stuff that was very inform influential for the early blogosphere that Mark was a, a huge part of was that Badiou has this argument in, I think it's his book called Philosophy for Militants or something like that, 
And he talks about the way that a new philosophy is always needed to kind of help birth a new science. Science in, understood in a very general term. And he has this list where it's like, you know, Plato helped birth mathematics. Kant helps birth Newtonian physics. Marx and Hegel helped birth history. Nietzsche, Bergson and Deleuze helped birth biology. And the question for Bourdieu is what comes next? I think a large, the blogosphere initially, maybe because of not just in terms of it being sort of a gathering of big egos like Bajou, but just the fact that you know, it, was, it, was, it was philosophy being done in a new space, being done online in the blogosphere. And whether that's the right place for philosophy to be done is a worthy question. Ray Brassier, who was also a part of that whole contingent, definitely doesn't think so. But that initial moment that we kind of now know as being the sort of speculative realist movement was an attempt to bring out a new philosophy that could support and kind of help develop the new sciences of the age, specifically our kind of new cosmic perspective on ourselves. So in that respect, I feel like that's the underlying project that Mark was initially a part of. Um, He had his own niche within that and developed his own sort of ideas and theories. But he was kind of part of that wider tapestry in a way. And that's not really like a cohesion. uh, It's a movement that lacks cohesion explicitly. Um, there's so much disagreement, but in a way, it's like all parts of this kind of uh, whether that's you know the speculative realists or um, the object-oriented ontology or um, uh, Prometheanism or accelerationism. All of these things emerge from that moment, and despite them being so disparate, they kind of all have this same in their initial instance this same sort of thrusting towards the new, and that's you know for Marx, best known for engaging with that culturally and more explicitly politically later on. But for people like Brazier, it was the case of doing that scientifically. For someone like Graham Harmon, it's arguably sort of metaphysically or even aesthetically and a combination of the two. And yeah, the kind of you can keep listing various different names of people in there. But I guess that's kind of what I mean when Mark talks about this sense of a popular dissensus. It's strange to think about the, 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 the cohesion of that moment is precisely a lack of cohesion. But in a way, I think that's the only way of thinking about it, considering how it's still such a, you know, we're still in this moment. It's a moment that's not over yet, despite you know capitalism as a as a sort of system hoping that it will be, and sort of always dragging the system. Uh, I mean, and accelerationism is is kind of the, what I'm interested in drawing out in this new project is precisely how accelerationism has been the victim of its own critique in a way. Accelerationism wanted to address the fact that politics always slides back into a reactionary state of inertia in the present moment, and all of these thinkers wanted to precisely as you know find a way philosophically out of that. And now with accelerationism itself, what we've found is that, you know, it's fallen on its own sword. It has, it has succumbed to that very same process of violent reactionary inertia and its far-right variant. That's something I wanted to, I was hoping we'd have a chance to, to talk about because it's, it's, it's that exact same, it's that exact question which you find in so much of Mark's work. But I know actually all three, uh, me, Will and Craig, wanted to um, talk a little bit about post-capitalist desire. Yeah, and me and you talked about that earlier this year in, in Huddersfield a little bit because part of my part of my paper was on that, and then we had some we had some great chats about partly about weird long table thing, and one way of sort of putting that question was well, I noticed in your in your you know in egress there's actually quite a few references to uh, Marcuse, which is great. I mean, I, I love I love the guy; he's, he's a brilliant thinker. So what I thought what I wanted to do was there's a quote I came across by Marcuse, and I thought I'd put it to you and see what you think Mark would make of this idea and how what that means for like accel- for accelerationism or for the you know for some form of the left 
Paula. So in the preface to Eros and Civilization, I'll, I'll sort of truncate the quote. But he says, whereas previous revolutions brought about a larger and more rational development of the productive forces, in the overdeveloped societies of today, revolution would mean reversal of this trend, elimination of overdevelopment and its oppressive rationality. The rejection of affluent productivity, far from being a commitment to purity, simplicity and nature, might be the token and weapon of a higher stage of human development based on the achievements of the technological society. As the production of wasteful and destructive goods is discontinued, a stage which would mean the end of capitalism in all its forms, the somatic and mental mutilations inflicted on man by its productive force may be undone. I read that earlier today, and that seems to me to be the sort of, perhaps this perspective which Mark is actually criticising in, in post-capitalist desire, and others like it, when he talks about you know, designer socialism and things. So, wondering what you make of that. I think that that's something that Mark would, in a way, maybe in some, when he's got some um, certain hats on, agree with entirely. Mm. Um, and Mark liked Marcuse yeah. um, a great deal and saw him as a kind of proto-accelerationist precisely for those reasons. Yeah. But in a way that, that that's accelerationism in its kind of uh, affirmation of that kind of thinking isn't an sort of uh, an ejection of the crisis that is at its heart. The question of, yeah, of a post-capitalist desire, of capitalist desire even, it's something that kind of it will. It's something that Marcuse quite explicitly introduces into popular political thinking, specifically in Eros and Civilization, his book on yeah. Marx and Freud. And yeah, that's a, that 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 lineage is kind of what Marx wanted to attach himself to, and that the lineage that goes from Marcuse to um, uh, Deleuze and Guattari um, to Jean Francois Lyotard. Um, to Nickland, to whatever comes next, um, and they all each each instance. It's a question of, um, yeah, do we really want what we say we want, and to what extent is what we want even something we can have any sort of control over? I feel like the Landian and the Leotardian and Landian intervention in that kind of thinking is that, which in a way is kind of been is still necessary today. It's an attempt to think desire in itself. Um, without, you know, devoid of any relationship to the human. In a sense, it's, it's a Kantian move. The way that, you know, the, the, the way that Kant's philosophical project is, the, is, is one that no matter what topic he's talking about, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of rational system that, uh, where every theory is kind of commensurate with each other. So like his theory of time and his theory of causation both kind of overlap and are kind of, uh, they might seem distinct on uh, face value, but they're kind of both entwined with each other. And I feel like that's something that continues in thinking of the speculative realists and the accelerationists and everyone else and Marx thinking in that the Brassier sort of introduces the idea that philosophy needs to think the universe in itself, which science has kind of made unavoidable. For him, nihilism wasn't some sort of um, pathetic edgelord sort of disavowal of your own agency, but it's the only realistic position that you can take under the scientific advances that we've seen. Um, that demand, you know, we see ourselves in a way of uh, a, a diminished sense, and we and we kind of have to think the world in terms of physics and thermodynamics and all these other forces. I mean, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but, um, but that's my understanding anyway. In themselves, you know, sort of devoid of us, and that's kind of the demands on thinking in the present. And that kind of thinking is then, you know, is is uh, for Alex Williams, who is most famous perhaps for co-authoring "Inventing the Future" with Nick Cernick, initially on his blog in 2007. Um, under the influence of Ray Brassier and Nick Land, 
Alex Williams wanted to put forth a left landingism that didn't just see, give a cosmic perspective on the planet, but tried to look at capitalism in itself. What is capitalism devoid of in relationship to the human? And I think in lots of Marx's work, I mean, the, the, Alex Williams would kind of scrub all of that landingism from his, I mean, the, the blog doesn't exist online anymore. You can, it's, you can find it via the Wayback Machine, but he's kind of scrubbed that quite fortuitously, considering how land is seen now, not undeservedly. But Mark, I think, takes that a step further in taking this sort of strange Freudianism and this Spinozism, and not just asking what the planet is in itself or capitalism in itself, but I also asked what is desire in itself? What is what 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 are our desires beyond any you know um, fidelity to our own thought processes? And that sounds maybe kind of like a, a useless task and even a bit of a fantasist one, but in a way, I feel like it's what's demanded of the moment. That seems to be the common thread, doesn't it? Desire is what runs through these different um, thinkers and trying to think through at least someone like Marcuse and, and, and also with uh, Mark, is how do we think about desire you know, beyond capitalism, right? Mm. That seems to be where it's going. Yeah, but it's even like it's, it's I mean, it's, it, I think the, the nature of that question is so, is so twisted. It's kind of like a kind of like a quantum desire sort of analysis or something where, I feel like, I mean, again, a part of this trajectory kind of emerges specifically from sort of Anglo, Anglosphere in that, like, the, that the most important influence on all of this thinking is the, is the, the English translation of Freud's use of the word trebe. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right, which is, you know, it's uh, initially in translated as instinct and then is translated as drive. Um, and both of those things can also be understood as, as, as desire. But the importance of you know of, of of choosing drive over instinct is it is it kind of jettisons the the biological um, association. Tree can also be used to, to to translate as sprout, as in the growth of a plant emerging from the soil. But that biological way of phrasing it kind of limits limits our thinking with you know after the industrial revolution. So calling it a drive gives it a more mechanical and machine equality. The introduction of that thought is going kind to of follow through to its end. Um, as capitalism and, and industrialization has progressed to the point where you get, you know, land's most famous proto-accelerationist text being machinic desire, which in a way is just an elongated way of saying drive. But the implications of thinking drive in that way, of any drive, whether that's, you know, the, the infamous death drive or something else, is that, you know, that, that this our understanding of that keeps developing and becoming more and more complicated as capitalism and industry itself, de- itself uh, in, in themselves develop. So that for Mark, it becomes in his PhD thesis, flatline constructs, it becomes not just machinic in terms of cogs and gears, but, you know, cybernetic. And that's something that, you know, that continues to, you know, I mean, I think Land's most recent project on Bitcoin and philosophy has a great deal to say about the next development of that thinking, whether anyone will even bother to give it a look in, considering what he's done to his own reputation. is another question. Personally, I'm kind of... Tentatively, still interested to read what he has to say because that project in particular, I think, could be hugely important across the political spectrum. Um, and the questions that he raises and the things that he makes possible in thinking Bitcoin philosophically are really important to revitalizing the sort of what now seems like the dead project of accelerationism. Well, now that we've broached the topic of accelerationism, I would like to turn the focus back to your book where you do talk about accelerationism and Mark and Nick Land's relationship. 
Of course, Land applauds the triumph of capital as the zenith of desire and its history. Marx certainly opposes that view, but with the qualification that post-capitalist futures remain emergent within the spaces produced by neoliberal capitalism. But one of the things that I wanted to touch upon were the objections to accelerationism, whether it were a right or a left variant. Uh, a common objection to accelerationism from the left is that it has the potential to be catastrophic and could harm underserved communities, for example. Now, recently, David Harvey cautioned the left about the dangers of a catastrophic disruption of capital, which then, of course, drew criticism from all sectors of the left. Uh, but in the book, you attempt to vindicate Marx's brand of accelerationism with the claim, it does not mean accelerating any or everything in capitalism willy-nilly in the hope that capitalism will thereby collapse. Rather, it means accelerating the processes of destratification that capitalism cannot but obstruct. So in view of our current historical moment and the possibility of revitalizing accelerationism, how might have Mark or you yourself imagine the project of refurbishing accelerationism to proceed? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. On the one hand, the objection that capitalism, sorry, accelerationism from the left being sort of potentially catastrophic is, is a non-starter for me, I think. Um, you know, there's any political project has the potential to do people harm. That's the risk that you have to take when you embrace change. And that's not to say that, you know, it, that a bunch of, you know, largely white male theorists should advocate for radical change at the expense of other communities. Should we denounce Black Lives Matter because it's a movement that might lead to the further persecution of black lives? You know, that's precisely what's happened. State capitalism threatens and indeed enacts further persecution as a response. So they enforce the status quo through fear of repercussions. And I feel like as far as acceleration is concerned and how it can proceed, acceleration is happening whether we like it or not. But this is the question of where, you know, it's, it's a fact of taking some sort of charge of what we can do in the process. Acceleration is happening. Change is happening. But, you know, the question is in favor of whom? Um, Silicon Valley's monopolized what Mark and Jody Dean called community capitalism. Um, and the point is that we have to do what we can, if anything, to sort of assuage capitalism's co-option of these like new desires. So it's, you know, it's worth emphasizing that Black Lives Matter is incompatible with capitalism and the structures that keep it in place, precisely, you know, the, the police in military industrial complex, first and foremost. The, the problem that accelerationism throws into this equation is that it is precisely, again, it comes back to this question of the, the crisis of negation, which is, um, I mean, Marx, Karl Marx puts this forward, first of all, in, um, the first volume of Capital, and he relates it to, I think it is anyway, was it the second? I'm not that, I don't know, I'll get, I'll get lost in page references for Capital. But anyway, um, Marx talks about the negation of negation um, as a sort of fundamental process within um, capitalism. And it's a really knotted process that um, leads to a lot of confusion. And I think because of this confusion has been ejected from the question of accelerationism altogether. Um, unnecessarily but for marx is essentially it's a question of he uses the example of individual property so feudalism has to abolish individual property you have to to facilitate the class struggle to you know that the the proletariat cannot own their own property that's left to the bourgeoisie so the proletariat have to work but you know it's one-on-one -on -one stuff but marx argues that when we transition to capitalism capitalism necessarily has to sort of reintroduce the possibility of individual property in theory Everyone under capitalism is capable of owning their own home. It's stress in theory. 
But the issue is that in doing that, again, this is what Marx argues, that if the ownership of individual property is universalized, then there's no such thing as individual property. You just have social ownership. You have capitalism leading necessarily to socialism. But capitalism has to then, you know, that, that's, that's the negation of negation. But the capitalism, as we've seen more recently, has to, you know, uh, dr- put, put drag on its own project. Uh, and we can see that coming in the form of rent. Um, you don't, you know, you abstract the feudal relation so that you're no longer just doing work initially, literally for the feudal lord. You are, you know, you go to work so you can make money that you then pay to your landlord. You put an extra sort of degree of separation in there. And now what we see is that we see rent sort of becoming the standard way of engaging with the world, not just in the sense that you rent, like, you know, most people rent, I assume, rent their, where they live. But now we also see that making, you know, a, 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 a cutting into culture. So you don't just rent where you live, you rent the media that you watch. You don't own movies anymore, you, you rent access to them. And the same with music. That's a really interesting thought that the proliferation of subscription culture is a kind of anti-production within capitalism. Yeah. And there's people that have, there's a few people that have written about this. I can't, I think Peter Fraser's is one. He has a book on Verso called Four Futures. And one of the features that he puts forth is this idea of rentism that, you know, rent will just take over that, that, that we'll have nothing. You will rent, you'll have to rent everything. You'll rent food even or something, which again, you kind of can see that you can subscribe to, you know, have food delivered to your house and, with that becoming the norm, you completely, you, you know, you get again, almost back into feudal relation. You abolish the idea of individual property. That's kind of the perfect example. In Marx's initial formulation, the universalization of individual property leading to socialism, that's the kind of thing that capitalism produces for itself, but then it has to obstruct for itself. Otherwise, you know, it's signaling its own demise. So when Marx writes about accelerationism, in, in terms of this crisis of negation, they're talking about, in a way, they're talking about the, 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 the staying, you know, aware of the, how that process works and the way that the ways that capitalism necessarily tries to stall it. And that's not just true economically, but, you know, again, politically. Then that's something that we see right now with Black Lives Matter. They think that that's, you know, the, the way that that movement lost its momentum in 2014. We saw the exact same sequence of events as we're seeing now. There was all these protests, riots even, where individual property was destroyed. And then the response to that comes from, you know, from uh, media conglomerates that says, well, okay, we'll remove instances of blackface. Or I just saw the, before joining the, the podcast, there was um, the, the, the Indian um, skin lightening cream has decided to change its name. So, you know, so it makes it seem like it's less of a taboo to have dark skin, even though, you know, but the, the product still exists. Um, and the way, you know, that's, it's, it's totally superficial, but that's the, that's the process of, you know, what Deleuze and Guattari call re-territorialization. And the benefit of that happening now is that we saw all this happen previously in 2014, and it worked to an extent, and then we kind of went back to our inertia. But if, now that it's happening again, we're very aware of what, what's happening. We're sort of, we, we, we see it for what it is, which is a superficial kind of attempt to assimilate radical protest back into capitalism and corporations. And there's a sense that, you know, it's, it's not working. What more can that movement do to, um, you know, uh, to reject those processes and kind of push further beyond them? We've gotten to the point of talking about police abolition and, um, or police reform even in a sort of soft left version. 
And now we get to the point where we have, you know, the, the left, especially in the UK, with like Keir Starmer, the Labour, Labour Party, sort of denying, calling that idea ridiculous. But of course he would, because he's a QC um, and was a you know, human rights lawyer for so long. He's part of that establishment that you know, depends on um, these kind of the the, the 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 systemic structure of, of of capitalism and everything that comes with it, be that racism, classism, etc. So yeah, I guess just the the point being that you know that 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 crisis of negation where it is is pervasive and it's everywhere, and that was always what accelerationism initially in its first instance wanted to attack and kind of draw attention to and and produce consciousness of, but that's waning I think more and more, and I think that's the one thing that you know that project needs to to revitalize for itself again, not just for the sake of a few internet bloggers, but you know for all of us. With the recent spate of uprisings embedded within the context of the COVID-19 world, there was about 6 to 12 days in June after the killing of George Floyd, where it seemed like we were to, well, first of all, we all took on a sense of seriousness and urgency about the matter. And it seemed for a short time to create this rupture where something could and did in fact happen but like you said, it wasn't very long after that. And I think right now we're kind of in the beginning stages of the bourgeois class reappropriating this narrative, making these superficial sorts of changes. I mean, for me, pulling down Confederate statues, uh, Christopher Columbus, all of that is great stuff. But it seems that the, the urgency and seriousness skirted class analysis. In short, I don't think these protests were too big for the apparatus of capture. And the ensuing effect, like you suggest, is this re-territorialization of capital. And we're back to business with interleft feuding on places like Twitter. And this exchange of resentments is arguably enhancing the vampire castle that Mark Fisher talked about. And I'm wondering what Mark's brand and style of analysis would have brought to this moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, this again. This is this is the it's it's the same. It's a symptom of that same crisis of negation. And again, to affirm that crisis of negation is a phrase that Badiou uses in this interview. I think it's on Lacan.com, um, and it's called the crisis of negation. But the way he puts it there is that it's a it's essentially it's it's like a it's like a, a line that Mark would say himself. The crisis of negation is that we are capable of destroying the old, but we're incapable of producing the new. And then, in a way, that's the I think the issue that comes from the the some of the destructions of statues um, in the UK, at least, when um, protesters tore down the statue of um, Colston in Bristol and threw him in the harbour, that was an instance that, to me, felt quite different from you know it was the first instance of tearing down a statue we'd seen in this country. I think that yeah, there's a, there's there's a somewhat of a precedence for it now in the US, but in when that happened in the UK, there was sort of a a sense that it, I think in a way it felt more important because it was so un-British. <laughs> it was so, it was so impatient. It was so um, unruly in a way that I think we're nationally not known for. It, that's what made it quite a sight to see, I think. And actually, you know, it, it seemed to ignite a certain sort of moment where um, the destruction of the old in the terms of that statue gave birth to a new kind of consciousness that had been suppressed by, you know, the, bureaucratic discussions that had previously been held around that statue going on for sort of 30 years, all solved with some collective action. 
whether that's to what extent that's capable of actually sustaining itself and producing class analysis is certainly, I think, the question that Mark would want to ask uh, himself. And I think that the, our capacity to do that remains diminished. But that, I think, was what he wanted to do with Acid Communism, his book that he was next working on, um, quite explicitly. And it's evidence for that, I think, is what's going to come out in this new um, editorial project that's just been finished that's um, called Post-Capitalist Desire um, that should be coming out on repeater books as an e-book in a couple of months, possibly September. Well, that's perfect because I was just going to transition to that part of our yes, interview great. here. Um, I'd like to finish up by talking about post-capitalist desire and um, the the essays that you're working on or the unpublished writings. They're unpublished, correct? Currently, yes. Okay. Yeah. And um, well, my question is, um, what are maybe some things that you've seen in this unpublished body of work that have stood out to you in the process of organizing them? In a way, it's, uh, I guess it goes back to a question that Pat had before about the consistency of Mark's project. Post-Capitalist Desire is, uh, the, the, the collection is called that because that was the name that Mark gave to a course he was teaching uh, at Goldsmith at the time of his death. He planned for a 15-week course um, that was to, yeah, interrogate the very questions associated with that phrase, do we want what we say we want? Only five of those lectures went ahead, but all five of those lectures were recorded. Those recordings were made available pretty soon after Mark's death. I took it upon myself to transcribe the first of them. And in a way, I mentioned this in Egress. It was kind of uh, beyond Mark's death that doing that um, was part of the, it was kind of the galvanizing moment that made me want to write the book. And in a way, it kind of shows that the, the book may have been slightly premature or even not premature, but, you know, I got caught up in the rest of the year that unfolded. There was, um, uh, I, I translated one lecture and then, life just got in the way. So in a way, it's a, this project's a, um, an opportunity to not just be a tease and to, you know, share that, those recordings. Um, there's five transcriptions or lectures, I should say, that deal with in order, they deal with, see if I can remember them, the concept of post-capitalism and the, the tensions around that phrase. Is that a phrase that gets trapped in the post of postmodernism? Is it right to have a project of capitalist abolition in a way that is so tied in its name to capitalism still? Mark asks those questions and he goes on to address the rise and fall of the counterculture. Uh, Gregory Lukács, uh, he looks at Gregory Lukács' book, History and Class Consciousness, and puts forward that Lukács' project is quite explicitly a psychedelic Marxism in its kind of, uh, in predicting a sort of consciousness raising. He goes on to the disavowal of class, of the working class that followed the 1972 US election. And then finally, he talks about Jean-Francois Lyotard's writings on the Biddenal economy. And I think what's becomes, I think it's, it's, it's a, I tie all of this together in quite a, a lengthy introduction that situates these different lectures in the context of Marx's other, other writings. Um, so as much as I think the assumption is that acid communism was a, a lost project that only had an introduction written and then was lost to, lost with Mark himself. In fact, a lot of the, the, this course can be seen, I think, quite evidently to be a sort of a um, workshop for that next book. And Mark draws on a lot of writings that he already has out in the world, but actually aren't that widely disseminated. Um, for the most part, none of them appear in the K-Punk reader that was put out a few years ago. And I think what becomes clear in that is, yeah, the, 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 the consistency of his project in terms of, uh, what happens, you know, after we're become aware of capitalist realism. Once we've, you know, the, the, I think that Mark, that book succeeded hugely in that it's, it's become a word that everyone's kind of every, a phrase that everyone 
who's engaged in some sort of left-wing politics seems to have a popular awareness of. But, you know, that's only the first step. And that's communism is a kind of, a, I guess, the, the sequel of what comes next. And even, you know, an analysis of why previous attempts to establish that kind of group consciousness failed. And it's, a, it's a quite obviously a very complicated and inevitably unfinished document. It's immediately apparent that there's hidden depth in there. And it goes a long way to clarifying Mark's project, I think, beyond its, uh, its kind of reductive appropriation by a few sort of soft left Corbynites in the UK. I don't take for granted that people who are coming to this podcast or to Mark's work have read Post-Capitalist Desire. So I'm going to frame a question uh, in a way that positions you as the avatar of Mark Fisher. I'll be the Terminator. How's that? Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a terrible pun. But um, (laughs) when I imagine someone encountering this essay, Post-Capitalist Desire, for the first time, I imagine them asking themselves what Mark Fisher means by desire, just the word itself. I think one of the reasons I put forward this question is the very example illustrated in the opening lines of the essay. Is it possible to disentangle things we think we want from the very system that provides us with them? I think if we get tripped up by a facile notion of desire, Mark's analysis is a non-starter for us. But um, perhaps this question seems basic for you know folks like you and I and Will and Matt, who've been immersed in this discourse community for a while. But it seems to me, as it did for Mark Fisher, to be important to return to the question raised by Deleuze and Gattari, which is, what is the relation of desire, as Mark Fisher sees it, to politics and advanced capitalism? And why is that question important to us if we're going to move beyond capitalism? I mean, I think partly, I guess we've touched on this a bit before in terms of for... Mark, it's a complicated term, um, perhaps in the fact that it's heavily weighed down by Freudian association. So, you know, the desire is, is, is one word of many. Now, if you haven't checked it out already, you will probably want to read Egress on Morning, Melancholy and Mark Fisher by Matt Cahoon. It's published by Repeater Books and it's available on their website. Go ahead and check out Matt's blog at xenogothic.com. We'll put the information in the show notes. Do you want to continue the conversation with us? Matt and the rest of us on Acid Horizon go deeper into post-capitalist desire. We talk about Deleuze and Gattari. We talk about Freud. We talk about the death drive. If you want access to that part of the episode, go ahead to our Patreon page and subscribe to us for as little as $1. But like I said earlier, now might not be the time to do that. So if you really want it, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter or Instagram or find our Facebook page, and we'll just send that episode right on over to you. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.